electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Big show of cues today. A quandary in crypto as all of the major currencies sell off, plus a block of seagulls, why the Twitter CFO is bearish on Bitcoin. Then forget the metaverse. This might be the next big investment frontier. A deep dive into quantum computing is coming up. Later on, John is live at Qualcomm's Investor Day in New York. CEO is with us first on Tech Check this hour, D. Yeah, I can't wait for that. But we start off with a sell-off in crypto. Bitcoin falling below 59000 this morning. Ether also down by around 6%. The move lower comes after China's state planner said during a press conference that the country will continue to, quote, clean up virtual currency mining. Bitcoin is currently on pace for its fifth straight day of losses. Although we should note that the current price only takes us back a few weeks to level seen at the beginning of November. Now, all of this coming is Twitter CFO Ned Siegel says that it doesn't make sense for the company to put crypto on its balance sheet. Maybe not the tone you would expect from Jack Dorsey's fellow exec. Have a listen. Oh, that's what he said. So, <laughs> guys, um, <laughs> there, there wasn't much more to it than that, though, in all honesty. And so it's hard to see this as a very bearish signal. Obviously, Square, Jack Dorsey's other company, has made a big bet on Bitcoin. It's not really all that surprising that the CFO of Twitter would say that they're not going to hold it on their balance sheet. There's really still a lack of accounting rules allowing companies to do so very easily, John. Yeah, I mean, for Square, it's one thing, right? They've got an audience of consumers that are excited about um, cryptocurrencies, about fintech, uh, about these new ways uh, of exchanging value. But Twitter, I mean, this is not a company with a particularly long leash. All this volatility in crypto itself, Carl, probably adds a level of risk that's not great for them. I mean, you know, it, it's gone up. It's gone down. That uh, There are people, what, we, we just had Tom Lee on yesterday who still think it's going to go up to 100000 by the end of the year. If you're Twitter, then half your time's got to be spent figuring out when to buy and sell crypto mm-hmm. when you've got a business to run. Could be a distraction. Yep. Uh, it's definitely like uh, trying to ride a, a bucking bronco. And some companies, for a time, uh, do you have sort of made that work for them. Tesla is a good example. Uh, but look at Robinhood today, where so much of their trading was crypto based for a time uh, close to a record low this morning. Right. And they're in the business of crypto. So that makes a lot of sense for them. But perhaps in a way too, you know, guys, we talk a lot about Jack Dorsey being the CEO of two companies. How does he have the time to do all of this? Can he do both well? It shows that he is bringing a very different playbook to each company where it makes sense. And, you know, having Ned Siegel talk about this perhaps shows that he is calling more of the shots in this sense. And you had the CFO of Square talk largely about Bitcoin. So you can see, obviously, how they differentiate. To your point, John, it doesn't make sense for Twitter to be spend time or perhaps a distraction on the volatility of crypto. But as for the broader sell-off, Carl, uh, more whale selling here. So perhaps more institutional interest. You can read that as a bearish or bullish signal. Uh, But this march upwards continues. It is, as we mentioned at the top, kind of a small fall in the price of Bitcoin and Ether compared to the gains that we've seen over the last few months. Uh, 
to that very point. Uh, as crypto does uh, come back a bit, our next guest sees payments and fintech suffering as well as underwhelming fundamentals. Also has some worries about what he calls dynotech companies like IBM and Intel making comebacks. Talk about all of that with Webbush Securities Head of Technology, Media and Telecom Trading, Joel Kalina. Joel, great to see you again. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I guess just on crypto to start, um, a lot of discussion this morning about the trend line being so strong that there is a fair amount of cushion before you would start to worry about longer term uh, technical damage. Yeah, exactly. And today's kind of sell up does feel very technical in, in nature as well. It's kind of running some resistance at the higher end of, of the range. And, and I think you kind of obviously you mentioned, you know, Twitter, Twitter's kind of headlines that, that are gaining some attention. I wouldn't look too closely into that. I still think corporates are trying to figure out where crypto kind of fits into their longer term strategy, what makes sense um, versus kind of just jumping in head first. So, you know, crypto, I mean, you, again, a little bit of a wind coming out of the sales. But again, we've seen every dip bought really you know, aggressively over the past 12 to 18 months. And until kind of, you know, the, the, the price action tells us something different, it still feels like, you know, if you do see these 10 to 15 percent pullbacks, our opportunities to add and, and still some kind of emerging technologies. Yeah. Now, we mentioned um, payments and fintech suffering in the intro. Uh, what do you mean by that? Sort of frame uh, a bearish view, if that, in fact, is what you have. Yeah, well, essentially, if, I mean, you look at fintechs and, and your more traditional names and, and, and the payment stocks, they've had arguably one of the worst earnings season overall. Um, not just the PayPal's of the world, but you look at some names like uh, FIS and, and GPN and, and Pfizer, just from a fundamental point of view, things are just headed in the wrong direction for these legacy companies. Obviously, they're being negatively impacted by kind of a very choppy recovery, especially dependent on, on where you're located geographically. Um, but, you know, crypto is, is gaining in popularity, and that's negative for a lot of these traditional names that I just mentioned. Um, and then on top of it, we know buy now, pay later theme has exploded uh, over the past six plus months. Really, just look at the, the kind of price action of a firm, which I know you guys have talked about, you know, recently post their earnings um, and their expanded relationship with Amazon. The big boys are jumping into this trend, and that's where these legacy names kind of are going to suffer. And again, and, and this is also a tape where you're just not seeing investors looking for stories that haven't worked or they've been losing all year. There hasn't been just been very little bargain hunting going on, and especially in tech. And, and this is kind of where these fintech payments, you know, uh, fall into that bucket. Joel, um, you mentioned Unity and Matterport as a couple of names. Yep that you like, and I'm hoping that you can explain the thesis that you have in graphics, in AI. I mean, the, the term metaverse keeps getting thrown around, but I think there's a lot of stuff in there, some of which is real, some of which is wishful. What's the real uh, metaverse-related thesis that you think investors should pay attention to that links into these, these two stocks in particular? Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's the funny thing. I kind of put these notes together 48 hours ago and you kind of can still see the metaverse kind of continuing to gain a lot more headlines. Companies are are throwing it out there left and right. And that's that's the concern, I guess, right? Where what's real and what's hype. And, and it's starting to feel a little bit hype. You just look at the meta, meta ETF. I know you had Matthew Ball on yesterday, who's obviously a pioneer. Um, and or he was on one of one of the programs and, and, and kind of investors are trying to figure out what are the winners going to be and who's going to be the loot, you know, what's just the hype. But Unity is probably one of the best companies out there. You know, valuation is getting a little bit steep, to say the least, up here. Uh, but in terms of what they can do with their game engine uh, and, and incorporate and implement kind of uh, parts of, of the metaverse, it's going to make them a long-term winner, um, not just in the gaming side of things. But what their CEO has really done a great job is kind of focusing investors' attention 
uh, outside of gaming and other other kind of TAM opportunities. And that's where Unity really jumps out. Now, Matterport, you know, it's one of these kind of stocks that it is it does get tied with a SPAC. So it has kind of that scarlet letter on it. But it, they do, you know, spatial 3 technology, mostly used in real estate right now. But people do see opportunities expanding massively outside of the real estate market. And, and obviously, Metaverse, it could be a very big opportunity for a company like Matterport as well. Yeah. Hey, Joel, it's Deirdre. Good morning. I saw your tweet this morning, hashtag Metaverse hype, uh, something you hear more and more as many different yeah. companies try to latch onto this term. You mentioned Unity. That is one that we hear often as sort of being the real deal, though, ironically, the CEO tried to throw a little bit of cold water on the hype also. Uh, going back yeah. to your fintech views, you mentioned something interesting, sort of this bifurcation between some of the legacy names like Visa and yeah. MasterCard versus the more upstarts. But you see Visa and MasterCard trying to partner with a lot of the newer guys also do you think that they're doing a good enough job trying to keep up or will they ultimately be displaced and see value erode i mean i don't, I don't think you're going to see them be displaced you know forever they're, they're good there's going to be obviously a place for, for these companies moving forward in, in, in our world but i think you know it, it's clearly they're behind the eight ball and and they've been left behind a little bit in emerging techs and we can see what happens to you know look at ibm and intel you know i you know i mentioned kind of dinosaur tech in some of my notes and and, and right now they're kind of falling in that bucket. So they have no identity. And in and, and a world of extreme factor rotation, you have you know, names that aren't really value names, they're not really growth anymore, and, and they're sort of homeless in terms of uh, you know, their identity goes, and that's leaving them you know, kind of left behind. Uh, it'll be interesting to see you know, what, what, what had, you know, deals and partnerships they kind of continue to forge forward uh, heading into 22, but it's clear they have a lot of makeup work to do as again, you know, you know trend, themes like crypto kind of continue to explode in the BNPL trend, you know, really aren't showing signs of slowing. Uh, fascinating uh, way to look at it. We'll hear more from Gelsinger uh, tonight with Kramer on Mad Money. Uh, Joel, we always appreciate it. Great to see you. Yep, thanks Kramer. for having me, Let's turn to Walmart this morning. A huge story uh, falling after a post-earnings pop uh, in classic style, despite a beat on the top and the bottom line. E-commerce sales continue to drive growth up eight. CEO Doug McMillan was with us earlier this morning on Squawk on the Street, and we talked about the company's digital transformation. We're making money in different ways. Walmart's become more of a digital company, in some ways more of a technology company. Um, we're investing, as, as I think you know, to transform our technology and to work in different ways. And so we've got some businesses like the advertising income business in the U.S. We call it Walmart Connect, but it's also happening in India with Flipkart and PhonePay, in Mexico with Walmex. It's happening in Walmart Canada. We're taking these higher margin digital businesses and we're starting to scale them. So you got web sales up 8D uh, versus in-store up 9.5, but uh, Doug did take pains to say that they are emphasizing reliability and convenience uh, over, say, rapid membership subscription growth. Right, and they were investing back in the company. That's why you may not see them increase their share buy buybacks, as I know you guys asked them. Another interesting thing he said, guys, I thought, was the whole idea of this labor crunch. It was all that was talked about on the Amazon call a few weeks ago, how they were spending $4 billion on getting more labor at that seasonal hiring, as well as getting their logistics, their supply chain issues ironed out. But you heard a very different tone when, when you know, David asked him, are you having trouble finding labor? He said that we were kind of past the brunt of it and they were having an easier time as the stimulus checks stopped. So John, interesting dynamic. If Walmart is a tech company, that increasing competition between them and Amazon in terms of labor specifically, is the number one and number two private employers in America. 
Yeah, McMillan got some flack when he started raising wages earlier than the pandemic and earlier than this big labor crunch. But what a worse position Walmart would probably be in if he hadn't gotten a lead uh, on that and if he had had to pivot so much more quickly. But it's interesting. Cristiano Amon, the CEO of Qualcomm, I'm here at their investor day. He was just talking a little bit earlier about retail technologies, technologies at the edge that they're working on. That's some of what Walmart is investing into. Also, Tony Shu at DoorDash. We have talked to him. We're just at grocery shop. Walmart's a big grocery player talking about the need to add convenience and a bigger share of wallets. So Walmart very much playing in that space, those themes that he is talking about. And of course, we're going to have Cristiano Amon in just a few minutes here with us. The Investor Day is when they're going to make some financial projections uh, a little later on in the day. I'll have those at Power Lunch adjusting what, they're, what they see as a total addressable market that they're going into. Some news announcements, too, that Cristiano is going to bring us uh, more detail on having to do with a partnership with BMW. But lots of news here at Investor Day, D. Yeah, we can't wait to hear that interview, John. That's coming up on the show, as you mentioned. Uh, a big hour of Tech Check is just getting underway, so do stay with us. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This morning on CNBC, we are diving into quantum computing. Eamon Javers is looking at the importance to America's security and global competitiveness. Kate Rooney with me at One Market. She's going to break down tech's appetite in the space. Let's start with you, Eamon. Inside the headquarters of IonQ, one of the first pure play quantum computing companies to go public so people can actually invest in this, Eamon. Yeah, that's right. As you mentioned, I am standing inside the headquarters of IonQ. This is a publicly traded quantum computing startup. It's just across the street from the University of Maryland. Now, over on the campus, hundreds of quantum scientists are pushing the limits of this technology, which experts say is going to leapfrog today's so-called classical computers in raw calculating power. Now, the U.S. intelligence community does warn that quantum is one of the five technologies crucial to the 21st century. And they say China and other foreign countries are aggressively trying to steal these new discoveries that they're making at places just like this. And that means that the scientists here have an enormous technical and security challenge. The university's president says he tries to strike a balance between security and open academic research. Security agencies like the FBI and others have alluded us to these issues where there has been espionage. And we do have to be careful about that. I think that's a reasonable expectations of university. 
Now here at IonQ, their quantum computer is already being used by customers from Google to Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is working on algorithms on a quantum level that will help them understand financial risk modeling, which is fascinating and poten potentially transformative on its own. But they're also seeing interest here from outside the United States. If we look at our website, about half the traffic is from China. Half? Half. From so, China? Yep. And their people are busily probing and you know, trying to do um, various things trying to get through it. So the quantum computers here are real, but they are in their infancy. Now you can see one of the earliest generations is already on a display case here behind me. This one uh, is the vacuum chamber of a computer that they built back in 2018. And to give you a sense of just how fast things are developing here, they tell me this entire unit can now be built smaller and small enough to be the size of a deck of cards. So they're already miniaturizing all of this stuff. Peter Chapman told me that one of the biggest challenges is going to be to find scientists who are able to program for these computers as they go ahead and build the software as well as this hardware. So that's one of the keys to all of this. Uh, now let's get over to Kate Rooney, who's been looking at the investment side of all of this. Kate? Hey, Eamon, thanks so much. So you talked about sort of the government side and spending there. The private sector in the U.S. thinks it can make up for lower government spending in quantum to gain an edge in this asset class and in this investment case, equity investments in the space have exploded recently. 90% of all investments took place in just the past three years, and it's on track to top $1 billion for the first time this year. That's according to BCG. Investors compare where we are today in quantum to the 1960s in classical computing. For example, they're still figuring out what materials to use right now. And as a result, 80% of investments have gone into hardware. I'm told the hardware really needs to be built and tested before some of these software applications can really work. And there are only a handful of private startups and companies in this space. Cy Quantum, Rigetti, Seek is another one. INQ uh, recently went public where Eamon is today. All of these are seen right now as M&A targets. But big tech is looking to build their own quantum computers before looking to buy. Google, Amazon, Microsoft, IBM are all competing in the space. Industrial companies as well are looking to get into the mix. You've got Honeywell in there. So what are the use cases? Well, similar to classical computing, it's starting with these massive supercomputers really used by universities and research labs to start, then on to some of the B2B or business-to-business -business applications. I'm told pharmaceuticals, healthcare, biotech, climate tech as well. We'll see some of the early applications for quantum, also finance. But it could be decades before there are any real consumer use cases. And eventually investors say quantum will touch everything we do. And finally, guys, it'll help power the metaverse, of course, which will need a lot of computing power. You didn't. You just had to throw in the metaverse, didn't you? <laughs> had we had a whole wrap. hit without it, almost a whole segment. Uh, Kate, you talk about the startup space and sort of big tech looking to get into this, like a lot of other trends that we've seen over the last few years. Um, still very, very early stages. And I know you said that there's, and, and a lot of VCs will tell you that there's sort of room for everyone, but we've seen other sort of um, tech trends play out, like artificial intelligence. You had IBM very early with Watson ahead of it, but then sort of been overtaken by these startups that have many of them have now gone public, like C3AI, Palantir, some of the others that are putting artificial intelligence to work. So what do you need to do at this point to kind of become a winner? You talked about M&A in the space. Do you right. think that big tech is looking at them? Well, so they're sort of taking different approaches. It's interesting. It's a bit of a land grab. So everybody's trying to get in, trying to hire is one thing. So you need people with pretty much PhDs in this to even invest in right. the space. The bar is very high to get in and invest or to be able to hire people. 
Google, Amazon, Microsoft, they're all taking sort of different approaches here. And IonQ even, they're using Ion technology. Some of them have completely different approaches here. And there will be losers. And even the VC investors say, that's why it's so risky right now. Everyone's investing in hardware. But some of these approaches just don't work. And if you think about Silicon Valley, the Silicon days, the people who were investing in other forms of technology and hardware, and even some types of semiconductors that just didn't end up working, lost, but that really is the venture model. The other thing on M&A, there is probably a, a musical chair situation about to play out in terms of M&A. There's only about five or six mm -hmm. companies out there that are not Google or IBM. But though I'm told, and you'll find this interesting as a reporter that covers Google and Alphabet, they have done a lot in quantum, and I'm told they are by far the most quiet and sort of secretive in this space, whereas there are others. IBM is putting out Talks different releases. So there's also different strategies in terms of signaling to other competitors mm -hmm. what they're doing. Yeah, Eamon, I get a lot of inbound uh, investor questions about quantum. You know, I've, I've talked to IBM about it, Honeywell about it. Here's my take on it so far. There's a difference between research and development. Research, longer out, really hard to, to tell when it's going to be a viable product, when it's going to scale into platforms, into kind of a public market investable stuff. So I, I think the caution here, and I don't know if you're hearing this too, is it's not as if we know that this is on the cusp and it's going to be scaling up in two, three, even five years. There's research going into this. There's a lot of investment, private investment dollars going into it, but it's not really clear who the winners are going to be or how. Yeah, that's exactly right, John. A lot of these companies are not going to necessarily make it, right? I mean, some of them are going to bet on the rent wrong technology. They're going to have bad execution. But some of them will make it. And the optimists talk about a timeline of inside about 10 years between now and when you get to real what they call quantum supremacy or the ability of quantum computers to shoot way past uh, today's classical computers. And when you get there, that's when things get really mind-bending. Peter Chapman, who's the CEO here at IonQ, told me that he thinks this will lead to a wave of productivity in the economy that will be greater than the wave that we saw from computers themselves. So if you think about that exponential growth that we saw over the past 50 years in the economy, he says we could see something even bigger than that uh, in the 10, 20, 30 years to come because of these quantum machines. The amount of calculations they can do simultaneously, he says, a classical computer would solve a maze by going down one path at a time in order to figure out what the solution is. A quantum computer will do all the paths at the same time, solve it instantly. He's talking about the number of calculations greater than the total number of atoms in the observable universe. So you, the, the numbers here are startling and the impact for the, the economy is potentially massive if, if somebody perfects this technology and they're working on it right now. There are real quantum computers, early generation, but real ones right in the back room here at IonQ. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Eamon and Kate, uh, we could be talking about the effects of this for, for years and years to come. Uh, that's really good work. Eamon Javers and Kate Rooney. After the break this morning, a Tesla bull turns bearish. Why our next guest is downgrading the stock after having one of the highest price targets on the street last few years. Stocks bouncing back a bit this morning after a rough start to the month. Meantime, Dow session highs. We're back in a moment. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. In a moment, Julia is going to bring us the latest from that Tinder IAC trial following Barry Diller's testimony. In the meantime, though, let's get a quick news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Home Depot is leading the Dow Industrials and hitting a new all-time high after posting strong quarterly results. It's sales growth indicating continued demand for home improvements and few problems in its supply chain. Walmart also beating top and bottom line estimates, although online sales were disappointing. Walmart sales are down about 2%, making it one of the worst performers in the Dow 30. A flurry of economic reports out this morning. Overall, retail sales were also better than expected in October, possibly with help from consumers starting their holiday shopping early. U.S. manufacturing output shot up more than a percent last month to its highest level in two and a half years. And home builder sentiment also topping estimates thanks to tight supplies of existing homes and strong demand from home buyers. And for the first time in nearly a decade, the Green Bay Packers are selling shares in the team. So for $300 plus fees, fans can buy a stock certificate and claim that they're team owners. But the shares don't actually have any financial value and they don't actually give fans any say in running the team. The Packers say that funds raised will be used on stadium improvements. So perhaps you get bragging rights, John. You own the team, but you don't really own the team. I'll send it back to you. I'm tempted to make a joke about shares in controlled companies, but that would be mean. Rahel, thank you. Uh, Elon Musk warned he would be uh, selling shares, and he's living up to that promise, although the pattern to his sales raises some questions. Robert Frank is back, been following the story. Robert? Good morning, John. Elon Musk selling off another $930 million in stock yesterday. That, of course, to pay his taxes on his latest options exercise. So far, he sold about $2 billion for tax withholdings. He's got a lot more to go there. His tax bill could end up being between $12 and $15 billion on that massive pay package that expires in August. But according to the SEC filings, Musk has actually been making two kinds of sales. One is for these taxes, and the other is for a straight cash out. Of his, let's say, $7 billion in sales last week, $5.7 5.7 billion was not related to taxes or any options. Now, maybe he's selling to boost his cash holdings, maybe to invest in SpaceX or another business, or maybe just to take money off the table given the strong stock price. He will have to pay federal capital gains taxes on those regular sales. Musk on Twitter calling it, quote, closer to tax maximization than minimization. But since he now lives in Texas, which of course has no income tax, He does save billions from not paying any California state tax on these sales. And by selling now, he might avoid that potential 8% surcharge Congress considering right now starting next year for income over $25 million. The bottom line here, he is selling for tax reasons, but Deirdre, he also is selling perhaps to take money off the table and save taxes that could increase next year. 
Yeah, and he's still got a heck of a lot of money still in Tesla. Uh, Robert Frank, thanks so much for that. We're going to stick with Tesla. Once a Tesla bull, our next guest is now bearish on the stock, saying the combination of the recent drop in shares and Musk's massive sale of shares warrants a neutral rating. Let's bring in the analyst behind that call, Haim Siegel of Elazar Advisors. Haim, good morning. Great to have you with us. So are you saying that part of your call has to do with Musk's stock sale? Sales. Well, first, I want I, I would just be clear, I'm not a bear on Tesla, but we were a bull and we were a very strong bull for a couple of years with a um, you know, market leading price target um, based on our model. Uh, the, the stock just hit our price target simply. I think maybe Musk was looking at our tar- target. I'm not sure. But he, he, he did happen to announce that he was selling shares about the same time that the stock hit our target. Um, the street has kind of gone now past us. I mean, we were bulls when nobody was really that bullish. There were a lot of neutrals and sell ratings and, you know, $50 price targets. So I guess, you know, we, we've done this a couple of times where the stocks hit our price target. And, you know, it's actually been a little bit of a peak in the stock. So, you know, I don't mind being disciplined. Uh, I don't do what kind of a lot of uh, street analysts do, that they just find an excuse to raise the price target. We have an earnings number. We have a P.E. And when the stock hits our price target, as long if we can't find a reason to raise our earnings, then, you know, we have to make a decision. Yeah, I, I noticed in your note you say for now neutral rating, but we'll be back, I'm sure. So that plays into yeah. a lot of what you're saying. I, I wouldn't exactly call you a bear either. Um, how much of it then has yeah. to do with it just hitting your your target and how much has to do with sort of the competition coming onto the market? And I'm not really talking about legacy players, but um, yeah. the pure EV players that like Rivian, which has just done incredible, not necessarily competing directly with Tesla, but Lucid Motors as well. How does that play into your call or does yeah. it? Well, you're you're right. There's a lot of guys coming out of the market, but I think it's good for Tesla. I mean, I'm a, you know, even though I'm at a neutral now, I'm a closet Tesla bull, so <laughs> I'm one of those guys now. But um, you know, I do think that there's downside uh, technically. I mean, the stocks at and you know, and and we're above the street for earnings, so um, I just think. And I think it's a fair price target for where we are, but the street's way below us for earnings for next year. So there is upside. I mean, so based on that, I should be bullish, but um, I think it's just price target related. I mean, a lot of guys coming onto the market, I think is good for Tesla because it's free marketing. They're not really marketing except, you know, maybe Musk's uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> That's the marketing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, so all these guys coming onto the market, I mean, if you're going to kick the tires of a Rivian, you know, you're going to have to go into a Tesla shop and check that out. And you're probably going to like Tesla. And so it's kind of gets people in the door for free to check out a Tesla. That's interesting, Haim. Uh, and he's, he's long talked about competition helping the, the flywheel for the industry. Um, you know, we've talked about the, uh, the, the Musk selling for a few days now, but I wonder, you know, it was written yeah. like a few days ago that Rivian, uh, Data Trek wrote, is well, you the know, first legitimate competition that's, that's Tesla's ever had in terms of institutional uh-huh. investor interest. Is that true? Uh-huh. Do you think there's going to be some siphoning off uh, from Tesla into Rivian? Uh, you mean from investors? Yes, for, for especially I on institutions. Should, uh, I think a little bit just the opposite. I mean, we had a call in, uh, I think it was October. I mean, uh, if I remember correctly, that before the stock broke out to new highs, I mean, the stock was just going in an everyday, boring, straight line 
higher, you know, little by little. And that just looked like institutional buying. And I think what you have since, you know, uh, you had the S&P 500 induction, um, you had a lot of bears and non-believers that had to make a decision in Tesla. And, um, you know, they were hesitant and maybe we'll get a 0.1% position or, you know, we'll be underweight. But, you know, with, with Tesla, you know, ripping higher and the fundamentals just very strong, um, I think there's a lot of bears turned bulls and a lot of bears, you know, kind of forced to to rethink their, you know, bearishness. And so I, I don't think people are getting out of Tesla. I think people are I think big funds are getting into Tesla and that's why the stocks run up. And that's given uh, Musk a chance to sell. Right. And as you said, Haim, you're a closet Tesla bear. Did I get that yeah, right? I'm in the closet. No, closet Tesla, Tesla bull. bull. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you so much for your insight. <laughs> that's our, time. That's we'll our official you rating. There we thank go. You, official. <laughs> Carl. <laughs> Still to come this morning, uh, Barry Deller testifies, rejecting the idea that AIC, IAC lowballed Tinder. We'll get some details after the break. That trial between IAC and Tinder's co-founders rolls on. Our Julia Borston has the latest. Hi, Julia. Hi, Carl. Barry Diller defending IAC and Match Group against accusation from Tinder co-founder Sean Rad. He, along with other plaintiffs, alleged that Match Group undervalued Tinder when its parent, Match, went public in 2015. He's asking for $2 billion in damages. Now, Barry Diller on the stand explaining why Rad's valuation doesn't make sense. He said at the time, Match was valued at a total between four and a half and five billion dollars, saying that back then Tinder was making about five million dollars, while all of Match's other properties were making about three hundred million dollars. Diller said that based on that, it would be, quote, impossible for Tinder to be worth more than Match. Now, Diller defiantly denied that he ordered subordinates to lie to banks, calling the idea absurd. And Match followed up on his testimony with a statement saying, quote, plaintiffs are wasting the jury's time by calling witnesses like Mr. Diller, who had nothing to do with Tinder's valuation because they're more interested in grandstanding than showing evidence. Now, this morning, Sean Rad is back on the stand. He's defending his calculation of damages. This morning, they have been reviewing documents from Jeffries. That's the bank, one of the banks that was hired to determine evaluation of the company. Rad saying that Match gave the incorrect information to the banks and that there were some internal valuation numbers of more than $11 billion. Deirdre? Now, Julie, obviously this was back in 2015 when we didn't have very many publicly listed dating apps. You know, I think back to Bumble, which recently went public at a valuation north of $7 billion. Do you think that will play into it eventually when you talk about valuation, especially, you know, what it was looking at a private valuation back then, what it was worth a few years later? I think really what this comes down to, Jitter, is that back then they say they had no idea what was going to happen now. And that back then there was just no way of knowing that Tinder would become as big and successful as it has become. And that's really what they're arguing over. What did they know then? What did they not know then? And, and Barry Diller said very clearly that based on all the data that they had in hand and basically on the revenue numbers, that there was no way that they would have come up with that valuation simply based on how much the parent company was worth back then. So I think that the reality is, is that until Bumble went public, Match was the only public game in town when it came to online dating. Um, so now that there's there's Bumble and, you know, other companies are growing in the space, but it's still right now, Deirdre, the big ones right now are Match and Bumble and before Match right. was the only public player. Right. 
Well, we'll continue to follow that. Fascinating. Julia, thank you. As we had this break, check out shares of Workday upgraded to a buy at UBS. Shares are trading about one and three quarters of a percent higher. They say labor constraints have led to increased spending on back office software. Price target goes to 370 from 255. Plus, the CEO of Qualcomm is coming up. Stock is up better than 25% just this month alone, year to date, up 12%. We're right back. Let's get a gut check on Uber. The stock driving higher this morning. That bump comes on the back of CEO Darwar Khazar Shahi buying 200,000 shares. He tells me he, quote, likes a great deal. He says that Uber is stronger than it's ever been, and he's confident that will eventually be reflected in the stock price. Shares are up nearly 5% this morning. The market, though, still undecided. Uber trading above its $45 share IPO price, but off its all-time highs from earlier this year. John, people like it when the CEO buys stock. Yeah, and people like it when the CEO makes firm projections about the size of a market and how they're going to go after it. And after the break, Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon, he's right here sitting down with me now. The CFO is on stage about to give some financial projections. We might get him in the show. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to Tech Check. I am live from Qualcomm's Investor Day here at Gotham Hall in Manhattan. With me now, Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon. Cristiano, there's nothing like in person because you got the CFO right over here making projections about such an important technology market got you here live talking about it. So let's start with that. Akash just said 5G handsets are going to more than double from 525 million in calendar year 21 to 1.1 billion in 2024, and that's not even counting the 5G opportunity beyond handsets, and that's why you're focused at the intelligent edge beyond handsets. Explain. Look, we have, we're just the beginning of this 5G transition. 5G has been very resilient, even to the pandemic, we've been restating the numbers. But the reality is 5G has been designed as a technology to connect everything to the cloud 100% of the time. And that's really about connecting those billions of devices that are going to be connected to the cloud, creating this intelligent edge is a great opportunity for Qualcomm, diversifying the company, creating whole new end markets. Uh, you know, we're seeing demand for Qualcomm technologies across virtually every industry. And we had an opportunity to show like a video from Satya from Microsoft talking about our partnership across a number of different areas, really validating that. What you see the growth of the cloud it requires all of those devices at the edge that are connected as well, sending data to the cloud, and that's where we are. We, we're we the other side making that happening on the edge. And you're in some stuff that people might not immediately think of when they think of Qualcomm. Uh, Peloton, uh, Amazon Astro Robot was just out in Seattle a few weeks ago, you know, watching that thing ride around and respond to commands, you know, artificial intelligence at the edge. That's an example of what you're talking about. And today you announced expanded partnership with BMW for automated driving for ADAS and beyond. Why is BMW important and is the ramp of that kind of technology going to be faster than we're used to seeing in automotive when it's taken five, ten years for this stuff to actually arrive for consumers? Absolutely. Look, car companies now are becoming technology companies and uh, the car has been completely transformed by technology. What we're announcing at our investor day today is a digital chassis platform that touches every single area. We're one of the few companies with capabilities across those domains. And the press released the one in this morning. 
if the BMW had selected Qualcomm for their ADAS and autonomy. And it's a validation of our technology. Also, a very important milestone, I think companies like GM, like BMW, which are two that already announced partnership with Qualcomm and ADAS and autonomy, or our innovators, our technology leaders, and with that, we expect to build a halo effect of the opportunity for ADAS. I think what's exciting, you mentioned the Astro Robot, you mentioned uh, the Peloton. You now are going to see Qualcomm across all those end markets. It's ranging from consumer electronics to new category devices to cars, all the way to what we're doing with Walmart and retail. And that is what's making the edge opportunity real. We were just talking about Walmart earlier today. I want to talk about aggression because um, Vianeer. You saw Vianeer up for sale, stepped in, grabbed that. You have that arriver technology that you were working on with them. But you just became CEO July 1st, and that's a strong move. Tell me about M&A and how you're thinking about how Qualcomm's going to go after this stuff when it's an asset you want. Look, it's not what typically new CEOs do with 15 days in the job. Yeah. But uh, we're, moving, we're moving aggressively toward diversification and this opportunity for Qualcomm with purpose. That we always believe we're natural owner of the asset. It fits with our digital chassis platform. We had built a partnership. And looking forward, we're going to be doing more M&A, uh, especially to accelerate this opportunity to connect to the Intelligent Edge. Um, we, we're, we see right now, and we highlighted at the beginning of the presentation, we have a 7x addressable market expansion opportunity as we think about the edge. In the next decade, uh, we can go from an addressable market that we see right now of 100 billion to 700 billion. And clearly for that, we're planning not only organically, but through acquisitions, accelerate our path to market. So uh, there may be more of activities like what we're doing with Vionier. Okay, you know where to find me. Let's talk geopolitics for a moment. You've got President Biden meeting with Xi this week, some aggressive stances uh, from China on Taiwan, a lot of chips made in Taiwan. How important is it from Qualcomm's perspective for the U.S. to invest not only in domestic production, but advanced domestic production? And how fast do you think we can get there? Look, uh, one thing that we learned through the current semiconductor supply chain crisis, that semiconductors are important and important for now every industry. We have been very vocal since the beginning that a diversified, uh, geographically diversified as well, supply chain for semiconductors is important. It's important for across the globe. Um, we, we are one of the few companies that work on the leading node with all semiconductor companies. We have designs at TSMC, we have designs at Samsung. We have been public that we're going to work with Intel. So we're one of the largest fabulous semiconductor companies. So we need a very reliable supply chain and we're going to be very active to make sure that happens. Uh, finally, Let's talk about Q4 retail season. Doug McMillan was just on Squawk on the Street about an hour ago talking about their stance uh, technologically. Intelligence at the edge that allows stores to operate more efficiently, allows customers to get in and out, allows them to, to plan for demand. How quickly are customers moving on that? And I don't know if we've gotten to this point in the presentation yet, but how big an opportunity do you see that particularly being for IoT for Qualcomm? The answer is very fast. 
retail has been completely transformed by technology. And it was not just about e-commerce. It's really how uh, e-commerce really transformed our actually retail experience. The retail is one of our fastest growing uh, revenue streams within the IoT industrial space. Uh, we have been actively working with Walmart. I think we're very proud of this partnership. And uh, the opportunities across a number of areas, how we think about uh, labels with electronic shelf labels, how you think about cameras within the store to track, you know, traffic, track products, the checkout, self-checkout, uh, points of sale. It is going very fast, and it's part of that 700 billion overall industrial uh, opportunity of, of the edge, which is really driven by digital transformation of every segment, and retail is now Im immune to it. Retail in particular accelerated so quickly during the pandemic with curbside pickup and all that. Interesting to see that that's continuing to go. Cristiano Amon, CEO of Qualcomm, thanks for having me here at Investor Day. Uh, Deirdre, back to you. Great stuff, John. And if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Uh, keep your eyes on uh, ATVI today before we go. Shares are down this hour as The Journal now publishes a piece that uh, argues that CEO Bobby Kotick knew of the sexual misconduct allegations of the company for years and did not inform the board of directors. They've got access to some interviews and some documents. Shares down better than 5% at the moment. We're going to keep our eye on that as the story that has uh, troubled the company for a while now, D, continues. Yeah, I'm just getting through this piece from the journal, but some potentially really damning stuff, more details in this report, including one that Mr. Kodak drafted an email he had another executive send that said a distorted and untrue picture of the company was painted. And, John, there's been 500, more than 500 reports from current and former employees since the California lawsuit. So there is still so much to untangle here and just such an awful story. Uh, Carl, if the board didn't know about it, especially in this environment, that's where the issue is likely to lie. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.